a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome. I'm Kate and my guest today is a man whose work lines my bookshelves and guides my work as a leadership coach, facilitator and change leader. Welcome to the show, Peter Block. Thank you, Kate. It's nice to be here. Peter, I'm going to give you a bit of an intro. Um, yeah, I know that you're an author and also a citizen of Cincinnati, Ohio, a partner in Design Learning, a training company that offers workshops designed to build the skills outlined in his books. Peter's written classic books, including Flawless Consulting, Stewardship, The Answer to How is Yes, Community, The Structure of Belonging, and most recently, The Abundant Community, which he co-authored with John McKnight. Peter serves on boards of Elements, a hip-hop center for urban youth, Cincinnati Public Radio, and Live Person, a provider of online engagement solutions. His work is in the restoration of communities and creating a world that reclaims our humanity from the onslaught of modernism. Today, we're going to be talking about transformation, leadership, and his most recent work on Abundant Community, Awakening the Power of Families and Neighborhoods. Peter, to get started, I'd like to invite you to explain for our listeners a little bit about your own story, how you came to be the thinker, writer, change agent you are today. Well, I'm happy to do that as long as you realize it's all fiction. Uh, We do. We understand that. (laughs) So I uh, studied finance and engineering, And uh, at the end of my studies, I had a teacher who said there's this world called organization development that he thought I'd be interested in, and which kind of shocked me, but uh, his support meant much to me, so I listened to him, and I I kind of went to graduate school, and it was really in the 60s, and talking about making organizations more humane, more democratic. Uh, we got started early in the world of team building, a lot of the things that are taken for granted now about uh, groups and group process was just beginning, so it was a great beginning. So I did that work for 20 years, mostly with institutions and uh, mostly with businesses because that's where the money was. And then at some point I got, uh, I gave a talk and a guy came up and said, have you ever thought of writing a book? And this one was about late 30s and I said, of course not. And so he kind of badgered me, and I agreed to write it. And then I ended up writing Flawless Consulting, and it did all right. And then uh, another guy came up, Steve Pearsani, I gave a talk on empowerment. He says, have you thought of writing a book on this? And I said, no, and he said, we'd like you to. So I would say in the middle of my career, I began writing. And the, the books, I guess they did well, and it made me change my mind eventually about how to be useful. And I I always thought I had a mouth and could facilitate and consult. I never thought I had much to say when it came to thinking. Mm. So the big transformation in my life, and it kind of more now, you know, way into it, is that maybe my, maybe thoughts and ideas are the domain in which I should function. And uh, I don't do much work anymore. You know, I stopped consulting. By and large, I still need to be in the world. So it's been a, from being a consultant facilitator to now I just kind of love a thought. 
and uh, and it's nice because it's uh, you know as you get older you still have something to do. Well, your your something to do has made a big difference for a lot of people, and I'm curious how would you can you just describe for me the trajectory of your thought over your well, body of thought over time? You know, I'm, I'm curious from from flawless yeah. consulting to the abundant community. Well, you know, you write about your own issues. You write about what you don't get. And you get interested in your own uh, woundedness, your own struggles. Uh, so in the early days, relationships were a mystery to me. And so I was very involved with gestalt therapy and that kind of thinking, where you're, it never dawned on me that maybe I had a feeling or that experience mattered. I, I thought, you know, I've always been ungrounded and tall and off in the air. And so those early days, gestalt therapy is what led to flawless consulting with the, the fact that there, when, you're, when you're trying to have a difference in the world, relationships matter. Mm-hmm. And then you struggle to find your voice. And so as I was struggling to find my voice, and <clears throat> uh, my own imagination about the world, I got involved with Tim Galway and the inner game of tennis. And out of that came the empowerment book. Mm-hmm. And uh, stewardship was kind of trying to, have to, you know, what to do with power, how to, how to use power, how to use authority. I think that was also finding my legs. And the abuse of power for some reason and the question of freedom have always been the most compelling questions in my life. And so stewardship became that. I had a mentor named Peter Kestenbaum, and out of that came a book, um, uh, Freedom and Accountability, that I did trying to adapt. So, so I think that it's gone from relationships to finding voice to dealing with making a difference in the world and how to do that with some grace. And then I started getting involved in community. I get invitations from city managers. And I realized they're in the business of building community. And, and uh, that just called to me. And so the book on community, the book on the answer to how and abundant. So now... I'm really left institutional life in, in terms of my thinking, partly because I've probably said more than I have to say about it. <laughs> and, but the, it just seems that so much of the, what's going on in the world is the breakdown in community. And I, I kind of got that. Like in institutions, what's the most low performance is the breakdown in relatedness and the breakdown in clarity and the social structure of most organizations are so patriarchal, it's amazing work gets done. But in outside institutional or system life, it's really, we've lost, there's a breakdown in community. And most of the things we care about, raising our children and being safe and being healthy and caring, are communal problems. They won't be solved by better funding or better leadership, or better great individuals, or technological genius. They'll be solved when we decide that we're in this together. So now all my thought and frustration and agony is about how do we restore care for the common good and the commons. And A lot of the work I do, I ask people, to what extent are you invested in the well-being of everybody else in this room? And mostly that's the last thing people think about. They think about their own well-being, their own future, their own contribution. So that's kind of a long answer to a short question. Well, it was a, a wonderful answer to my question, and I, um, 
I want to read a little bit from the very opening paragraph of Abundant Community. And I'm going to read it because I think it will help people who are listening to understand where you're coming from when you talk about the... Um, I like how you said that, that you've moved beyond institutions and out into community, and that's where your work is right now. So this is what you wrote. You wrote, There's a growing movement of people with a different vision for their local communities. They know that real satisfaction and the good life cannot be provided by corporations, institutions, or systems. No number of great executives, central offices, technical innovations, or long-range plans can produce what a community can produce. People are discovering that satisfying possibilities for their lives are in the neighborhood, not in the marketplace. Mm. Where do you see this movement, Peter? Well, it's, uh, it's in the food world. There's a huge food movement towards localism. You know, it always gets exaggerated, so now you can't go to a restaurant without finding out who raised the chicken you're about to eat. But uh, you, you see that, so that's happening. Most mm-hmm. police forces realize that they can't keep us safe. They need citizens on the street watching each other mm-hmm. and caring for each other. We've reached the limit of schools, and so there's a huge community movement to help care for children in a way the schools have reached their limits. It's just that it's not, these are not commercial ventures. And so they don't get much publicity, they don't get seen. The business department of the newspaper isn't interested in these. And so, in a way, it's a subculture of localism and of, of citizens coming and doing from this for themselves what they thought they had to purchase. And I thought, I, I thought in this society, whatever I need, I can buy. If I'm wounded, if, if I hurt, if I'm vulnerable, I hire professionals to you know, if I want my children, I start hiring people the moment they're born to teach them how to take an SAT test. I, I hire summer camps to make them better soccer players. Mm-hmm. And I think with the, the kind of the recession, so-called recession, I think people are realizing they're going to have to do this on their own. And so in every field, there's a movement to reconstruct our thinking about what makes the world work. Even in economics, there's a whole movement and Mark Anielski wrote a book called The Happiness, uh, Economics of Happiness. Olivia Saunders is a professor in the Bahamas who talks about the economics of well-being. Mm-hmm. So there's a big shift in thinking in, in economics, in journalism. There's a whole journalism, and you're part of it, talking about why don't we talk about what works, where the history, historically, journalism has been investigative, which means that let's only talk about what doesn't work. The message every night in the papers is there's something wrong with us. And yet there's shows like yours. There's a, a, a newspaper called Axiom News outside of Toronto mm-hmm. that says that the storytelling for journalism is about what's working. What are our gifts? What are our capacities? Is it just as powerful a story as who did something wrong and what are we going to do about it? Thank you. Thank you for uh, elaborating on that. I, I think so often we sense a movement before we know such exactly. a thing is happening. <laughs> I know. You see it looking backwards mostly. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, even in the leadership world, uh, in psychology, there's positive psychology. There's, you know, some yeah. of it is mixed, you know. Mm-hmm. But basically, there's appreciative inquiry a lot of people will be familiar with. So all of these are part of this shift towards an alternative future based on gifts rather than what we have now, which is based on problems. 
So, you know, we, we just have a, a minute or two before we take a break, but one of the shifts that you write about quite a bit is the shift from a sort of a scarcity mindset into an abundance mindset or a sufficiency mindset, depending on how you want to talk about it. Um, can you just say a word about about that? Well, it's about context. Most of what we talk about is problem solving, what to do, what to do, what to do. But if your context is that there's not enough to go around, that people are basically competitive, that individualism is in the nature of, of, of being a human being, then that context takes you certain places, and that's a context of scarcity. It's a context of uh, there's not enough, so how are we going to divide it up? And the economic thinking is enormously compelling to us. So I think that underneath it all, you start thinking, well, suppose the context in which I viewed us was one of abundance. There is enough, and, and, and we can cooperate for a future we don't have to compete for. Well put. Well, it it's sparks all kinds of um, thoughts and memories to, to hear you even, or even refer to that. I was with a group last week. We were talking about um, this idea of enough, and somebody mm-hmm. said, well, but sometimes you just don't have enough. You know, and you have to you have to acknowledge that you, sometimes you really do have scarcity. What would you say to that? I would say that whatever you think is a construction, even if you're poor, a lot of people don't have money, but they don't have a scarcity mindset. A lot of people are very poor, uh, and yet if you ask them whether they have a future, they'll say, "I do." And so I think poverty in these days is to live without the possibility of the future being anything different. So it's a spiritual poverty. And the fact people don't have money doesn't doesn't kind of provide convincing data that there's not enough to go around. There's plenty to go around. We've just distributed it in a really funny way. My guest today is Peter Block. This is Kate Ebner, and you're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. This is Kate Ebner. My guest today is Peter Block, and we're talking about awakening the power of families and communities. We're talking about transformation, and um, I'm absolutely fascinated to continue our conversation, Peter. Um, I want to um, ask you something. You know, again, in, in the abundant community, in the opening paragraphs, which is, I have actually read the whole book, I want you to know, but I found the opening <laughs> paragraphs were really very good. You're dangerous. <laughs> um, you write that, um, you know, there are groups of local people who have the courage to discover their own way to create a culture made by their own vision. It's a handmade, homemade vision, you write, and wherever we look, it's a culture that starts the same way with an awakening. I would love it if you could tell us a story about one of these handmade, homemade visions and how that process works? Well, the, uh, you know, it's, uh, it begins with, with people kind of uh, finding each other. You know, it has something to do with leadership, too. Uh, there are most of us, even if you're active and a citizen of the city, you don't do much in your neighborhood. So a lot of what's interesting to me is what's happening in neighborhoods. And people uh, are discovering how little they ask for, want, or know about the neighbors. And so John McKnight has a study going where we're asking people, what do you love to do? What are you passionate about? And what are you willing to teach others? And, and the, the best story I know is Mike Mather at the uh, Methodist Church in Indianapolis. And so they've been serving people for years, food serving, uh, training for computers and, and uh, getting your high school diploma. And he finally realized that in his poor neighborhood, the people were just as poor now as they were 10 years ago. And so he, it dawned on him and that uh, maybe the role of the church and the role of leadership is to discover what gifts and capacities are in that neighborhood and help amplify them. So he, he stopped his service charitable programs and had hired somebody to go around and knock on every door and find out what do you love to do. Well, it turns out, and what are you good at? People are good at prayer. They're good at being with children. Some are good fishing. One woman was good at cooking. Mm-hmm. And so he said, would you mind? Well, we hold meetings at the church all the time. Would you mind cooking for us? And she said, no, I wouldn't. And so uh, local business says, can we meet at your church, Mike? And he says, yes, but if you eat here, I'd like you to use our caterer. And so this woman cooked, started cooking for groups. Well, she has a business now. And she has a catering business. She'll probably at some point open a restaurant. And this is three blocks from the church. Hmm. And to me, it's just a great metaphor story that people have gifts that we don't even know about because we see them as deficiencies. Now, this woman isn't, you know, she's not well off. It's a poor neighborhood. So he's now, the leadership from the church is finding leaders in the neighborhood that will discover what people are good at and then connect them. So I would say that connect the leadership function is one of connecting this woman with other people in that neighborhood that need food, connecting women with other people in that neighborhood who need prayer. And so it makes it, everybody in that neighborhood it has something for which they are useful. 
and want to teach other people. And that to me is community building, institution building. Even inside systems with many listeners a part of, you're still focusing on what's wrong with you. We have performance reviews every year. Uh-huh. As yeah. if, you know, and, and, and the whole notion, I'm going to develop you, give me a break. You know, most people are adults. They're over 21. I don't need you to have something in mind for me. I don't need your, quote, development. And so it shifts our way of being together, and whether it's in a neighborhood around safety or around food or what do we do with the elderly, well, let's find some use for them. What do we do with our children? Well, maybe a teenager is the name of a person with nothing to do. And so we've almost substituted achievement with our children for usefulness. So these are those stories that are happening. And on the website, AbundantCommunity.com, we tell story after story after story about somebody in their neighborhood decided to do something. And, and it doesn't matter what you decide to do because it's the connectedness, the social fabric that, that gives us the life we've been waiting for, which is a life where our children are, are cared for, where we feel safe. Where, you know, even my health is mostly determined by social factors, not by the medical profession. Mm-hmm. So if I was serious about health care reform, I would build groups of people and get them together to find out what they can learn and how they support each other. I wouldn't be in a conversation about lower costs and better management. If I cared about education reform, I'd say, what can every neighborhood do to care and know the names of these children? I wouldn't be bugging teachers to be better trained or to lower class size. If I cared about economic reform, I would say, well, how do we build people's capacity locally to provide and, and, uh, and kind of scratch out a living with each other? instead of worrying about more regulations and better control. So if you start thinking this way, it takes you everywhere. So as you as you run through that, you're really demonstrating for us the shift in thinking from mm-hmm. the system has the answers to we have the resource, we have the capacity for finding our own our own answers and our own um, our own solutions actually. Systems um, are important. They're mm-hmm. useful, mm-hmm. but they're limited. There's only so much they can do. And we've, we've expected too much. And now with the financial crisis, we're having to find other ways to do what we thought systems could do for us before. It's not an argument against systems. No, I, no, I understand what you're saying. It's not, it's not an either or necessarily, exactly. but, but I'm, I'm, I th- believe you're suggesting that we need to not give over all of our power to the system. And then, and then be um, disappointed. disappointed and impoverished by the results. Right. Yeah, same with leadership. We shouldn't give over our capacity to create a world we want to leaders and then be disappointed. I mean, we expect the world from leaders. There's this whole conversation going on about the president of the United States. <clears throat> no president's going to get me a job or keep me healthy or raise my child or keep me safe. So get off it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I want to talk about that for a moment, and, and I, I picked up on something you said a minute ago, which was that you know part of the job of leadership today is being able to connect um, what we have, resources, gifts, with real needs. Um, I want to talk about um, what kind of leadership we need to cultivate as a society, um, and I'm 
I'm playing on the idea that the old models of leadership are not particularly helpful to us at this point where there's a complexity and a, 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 a shift in the way the world is working that is actually calling for something else. What do you think about that? Well, you know, uh, we, we've always had a heroic model. And if you ask people, who's a, who's a great leader for you? Most of the people they name, they never met. And most of them are dead. So the idea of this heroic visionary, walk your talk, be a role model, is a longing for a parent. It's an escape from accountability. It's a citizen-employee escape from being responsible for our future. And so, and then we do a lot of training of leaders. We want them to have a good Myers-Briggs profile. We want them to have a good score. We want them to be situationally sophisticated. So all of that says that leader is cause and the rest of us are effect. So I would invert that and say we need leaders to bring people together. It's a convening function. We need leaders to confront people with their freedom. Don't reinforce their dependency. We need leaders who decentralize themselves in a sense. Stop working on themselves, your fine, your style may not be what you had in mind, but it's as good as it gets. And I say, we need you as a leader to see the whole, to care for the whole, to guide us as to what to pay attention to, but then to bring us together across boundaries and and almost force us to talk to each other in small groups about what's the crossroads we're at, what's the future we have in mind for ourselves. And so it's really a convening function. And a great model of that was the book Team of Rivals, where Lincoln had the most adversarial cabinet you could ever imagine. And he, his real function was to hold them together and stay engaged with each other. It wasn't that he had the way and wanted a lot of people to kind of get on board. You have all this funny old language of how do we get everybody on the bus. Well, I don't want to get on the bus because when I'm on the bus, somebody else is driving. Everybody else in the bus is facing forward. And so that's the shift. The circle becomes the goal. Small groups become the means. Engaging people in conversations about the crossroads, the choices facing us, what they can do. That, to me, is a huge leadership function. What do leaders have to let go of to to get there? Uh, First of all is treating followers as if their expectations are useful. I just have to get over the notion that I'm here to meet the expectations of those that follow. Employees and citizens are not consumers. I'm not interested. When I did workshops now, I don't ask them, what do you expect? Because I know their expectations are too low. So give up the notion that you're here to fulfill their intentions. So stop asking them, how am I doing as a leader? A good deal of indifference about that would be useful. Also, you know, people want leaders to predict the future. They say, well, I want you to tell me what's going to happen. And so you have to give up the notion that you know anything more about the future than people that are following you. You don't. A lot of times people say, well, people at the top don't tell us what's happening. Well, the reason they don't tell us what's happening is they don't know what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, boards of directors are basically, let let them alone. Let them be. That's fine. God bless them. 
And, and so giving up some of those demands on leadership, I think, is useful. And then you start, you start giving up the notion that somehow you're in, in control, you're in charge, you know. You're, it's just a silly thought and you can't get away from it. And there's, there's nothing in this conversation that argues against firing people or confronting people or setting limits. Because some people, some citizens show up and they don't want to work things out. They just want to be right. And so there's a function for leadership to say, stop. It's not what we came here for, but this isn't participative. I know it's not participative. Be quiet. And so it's, it's not a soft or weak-handed form of leadership. It's just engaging people. So you're giving up control, predictability, and the expectations that others have of you. Yes, and inviting them into a world where you can be you as a contributor um, versus the version of you that we would like you to develop into becoming. Exactly, and it is an invitation. Invitation is huge. It's a wonderful word. Excellent. Which means they can say no. That's right. That's right. And and um, I, I appreciate this conversation because, you know, as we're uh, doing our work as leadership coaches and as people who think about these topics all the time, um, being able to put words to this type of leadership, the sort of post-heroic leadership, is extremely helpful to us. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, Peter, I'm hoping we can talk about um, the perspective about a consumeristic society, being a consumer versus being a citizen. We'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. 
Welcome back. This is Kate. I'm talking with Peter Block, and you know, I would love to invite all of you to email us or call us and tell us what will help you here. What's landing with you as you're listening to this show? Do you have a question? Do you have an idea? Or do you just want to comment on something that we've been saying? We would would just love to hear from you. Um, Peter, before the break, I said that we were going to be talking about um, this important shift in the way we see ourselves. You write about this at some length in the Abundant Community, and it's really the shift from viewing ourselves as consumers rather than viewing ourselves as citizens. Can you just tell us what you mean by this and why it's important? Well, to be a consumer means I can purchase what I want. It means that my satisfaction comes is outside myself and comes from some other place. And it's not just about stuff or goods. It's also about healing. It's about health. It's about our, uh, help for our children or being vulnerable or people on the margin. And so the consumer mindset, A, is what I have is not enough. And the second is that I can get it from somewhere else. To be a citizen is to say, whatever it is that I need or want, I can produce with others. And to be a citizen says, I have enough. It doesn't mean that I'm well off. It's just that mean I have enough to provide and create the life I want or the best I can do within the context and circumstances that I've been handed with. I mean, this is such a thing as fate. Some people are born on the margin. They're born poor. They, they, you know, the opportunity school doesn't work for them. But that, that, that's no... If you stop there, then you become charitable and you say, oh, these poor people. Homeless people are not homeless people. They're John and Arthur and Sally who don't know where they're sleeping tonight. But they have gifts. I hate it when people say, I'm homeless. I don't, I think, that's not who you are. I don't show up and say, my name is Peter and I'm housed. <laughs> and so even people who are uh, poor and, and, and hardly have a chance, I would not call them consumers. Because the truth is that most people, most kids in trouble and adults in trouble have been well serviced for years. And you take an urban kid who's living on the margin, who's in trouble, who's got a record, doing things you don't want him to do. They are well-serviced, so more services. And so even the, the, the poorest of us can have a consumer mindset. And so the work with them is to say, wait a second, you have gifts. There's things you know how to do. You are enough. You know, what can we do together? And that together is a big thing, you know, because most of our leadership is to you're still teaching people how to deal with individuals. And so if you're really talking about visionary leadership, to me the essence of the vision is about connectedness, about community, about what groups can do. And the possibilities are limitless, even for people on the margin. There's, a, there's something in Cincinnati called Cornerstone where poor people, if they live in this facility and if they show up, go to meetings, take care of the place, help at the end of four years, they're given $4,000 in the bank. So it's wealth accumulation for poor people. Mm-hmm. It just fries everybody's mind because everybody thinks the poor are poor. And, uh, and so that's, that's the, to be a citizen is to say, with others, I can produce what's possible given the context of my life. 
And that the with others is what's missing in most self-help and spiritual movements. It's still deeply individualistic. You can do it. You can pull yourself up by your boot. No, you can't. We can do it. It's the we, not the me. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, I'm, I want to um, share with people who are listening um, the beautiful definitions that you've written here in, in, in the book because I, f- I feel like this distinction is just so important. And I think as we tap into the news or we watch the Olympics or whatever it is we're doing, we really are um, bombarded by messages that treat us as consumers. And so we tend to be, I think, a little um, unaware, actually, about the mm-hmm. trade-off we've made when it comes to the choice to live as a citizen versus to live as a consumer. Um, I don't know that we were making a choice, I guess is what I'm saying. So you say, a citizen is one who is a participant in a democracy regardless of their legal status. It's one who chooses to create the life, the neighborhood, the world from their own gifts and the gifts of others. And then you say, a consumer is one who has surrendered to others the power to provide what is essential for a full and satisfied life. This act of surrender goes by many names. Client, patient, student, audience, fan, shopper. All customers, not citizens. Consumerism is not about shopping, but about the transformation of citizens into consumers. It's really a, a mindset. Um, is my, and it's, uh, you know, you, you write about, um, one thing that communities can really provide us is, uh, you know, among other things, care. And and you you tell us and and you point this out and it seems so true that uh, we have professionalized so much of our care. We've made it services that we seek in order to care for our children, care for our health, care for our homes. You know, rather than actual extension of care, one person to another, um, in support of a, a shared. Um, community or a shared intention, whether it's a family or a neighborhood. And, and I'm curious, I'm so curious, Peter, to think about how do we get this back? You know, once we recognize, okay, yeah, that's true. I, I have kind of outsourced <laughs> my life. I'm consuming. I'm not, I'm not fully engaged as a citizen. What's the next step? Well, as you're speaking, I was thinking, you know, uh, citizen reads employee for people inside systems. And so you stop thinking of employee as consumer, as subordinate, waiting for top management to, to bless them. And so the, 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 the shift in thinking comes from a shift in speaking. And so even in the naming, as soon as I tell myself, I see what a consumer I have become, period. Uh, I want to experiment with what it would be like, what would a citizen do, you know, as soon as you speak that, something starts to shift. You kind of live into an alternative possibility through the narrative or speaking that you engage in, which means you stop complaining. You stop complaining about top management. You stop complaining about the mayor and the, and the businesses and the financial community and all those people, because every time you complain, you give up power. You reinforce your helplessness. You reinforce the entitlement that grows out of consumerism. Because the customer we thought was always right. The customer isn't always right. So it's a thinking and then a narrative, a speaking process, and then you start saying, who could I invite into a conversation about what we might do about something that concerns me? And it all begins with an invitation. And if you care about health, or care about kids, or care about safety, or care about the land, 
All you have to do is say, who can I talk to? What other citizen can I invite or join into a conversation about what we can do within walking distance to help raise our children, care for the land, care for the elderly, deal with health, you know, all the things that people whose lives is really organized around. If I care about making a living, I've got to stop waiting for Toyota to build a plant in my community. They're not coming. And then and people need to say, well, what is, how can I start spending my dollars locally to create jobs locally in my neighborhood, three blocks away or a short car drive away if you're in the suburbs? And, and that conversation changes the world. And, and it doesn't wait for a program. It doesn't wait for someone else's initiation. If you, if you don't want to invite, join something. As soon as you get interested in something, like a new word, it pops up all over the place. And, you, and, you, and it's just mostly a shift in thinking and narrative, and then invitation and action always follows. Well put. You know, as I as I listen to you, I, my my mind's going in, a, in many different directions. But I'll tell you a story about a couple of years ago. I hosted a retreat for a um, department of a hospital in New York City, and our job was to come up with a sort of a shared vision and a, a sense of unity in a in a situation where there wasn't uh, there was a merger and there's lots of change and people had enormous anxiety. And I actually took your book called Community mm-hmm. and uh, looked at it, um, you know, literally probably studied it, the, you know, the train ride up the night before, <laughs> trying to figure out, okay, we want to invite possibility, not get bogged down by this um, negative story of the past or, or the, the sense of limitation people are feeling. So we actually used the conversations for possibility. And as an exercise, the, the group... Went from uh, suspicion and skepticism and almost a hostility toward, you know, a formalized conversation, to this energized discussion about um, who we could be, what the new possibilities are, what we can create, what we have. You know, it was, it was, it was extraordinary, and it was um, astonishing actually to facilitate it. I mean, at the end of it, I think I found myself almost like sitting on the side of the pavement, like, "Wow." <laughs> That was really something. It's, it's too simple. It is. It's too simple. The, the idea that it changed the world, changed the conversation, it's too simple. Yeah. You know, the world, we've the grown up with the idea that if you have to analyze the world first to change it, and that's such, it doesn't change anything. I was in a group with Eminem Mars, who does great, great uh, kind of development work with their leaders. We're the only company I know that has the word freedom as one of their values. I thought, that's interesting. Hmm. Anyway, I had a group, same thing. I group it really, really well. And I, I was surprised always. And I, I could say to them, you guys are amazing. You know, why did this go so well? Why? And one of the guys said to me, Peter, can't you just stop trying to analyze us and enjoy the experience? And I thought, <laughs> oh, 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 my God. He just talked about my life, not about this weekend. <laughs> but the, the, the questions are powerful. And questions are powerful. Another thing leaders have to give up is having answers. In practice, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And uh, it will disappoint followers. And they'll say, you're not the kind of leader I had in mind. And you say, I know, how do you think I feel about that? (laughs) And then the question about 
possibility, you know, it amazes me. You can, you can have a thousand people in the room. And if you break them into small groups and ask them to share with each other the crossroads they are at at this stage of their life, in every case, something in the room shifts. After 10 minutes of that conversation, and, and you ask people, so what struck you? And they say, well, I'm not as alone as I thought I was. Mm. Which tells me that our isolation is a huge challenge that we don't even know. We're so isolated, we don't know how isolated we are. Because like, you give people a chance to be together, and wow, something happens. Absolutely. Something really does. That's a p- powerful example, actually. We're going to take... One more break. We'll be right back in a moment. My guest is Peter Block, and I'm Kate Evner, Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I'm talking with Peter Block today, and we're really hoping somebody out there is having a thought that they want to email to us or pick up the phone and give us a call. We would really love to hear from you. It doesn't have to be anything profound or um, or even a question. Just would love to hear what you're thinking as you're listening to today's show. Um, we're winding down the hour, but Peter, I can't help but think that if we all... Um, decided that we were going to choose to be citizens and that we were going to uh, tap into the power of our families and our neighborhoods in the way that you and I have been discussing and that you write about um, in your book, um, the world really could be a different place. You know, and I'd love, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Like, what if, we, what if we all really did this? How would the world be different? Well, you know, it, we would have, mostly we'd have a different conversation. We would uh, stop complaining so much. We'd stop looking for what's wrong with us. I think it would change the journalism. And I think the narrative, the story, the newspapers would, would announce what's working, that Clifton, Clifton Heights are doing something that's important to this world. 
They talk about uh, how people on the margin are more useful. They would talk about people coming back from prison as homecomers or returning citizens. So the whole journalistic narrative would change, and we'd be less interested in who died last night or where crime was committed in the world. I think that, that economically we would live on less. We would realize that we can't purchase it having more or what's new. I think it would you know, take us past the modernist notion that if it's not new, it's not interesting. Uh, I think in, in terms of our children, they would feel useful. If you ask a kid who's 12 years old, what are you good at? They could answer the question right now. They can't tell you what they're good at. All we care about is achievement. A friend of mine says, when you turn a, student, a child from a learner to an achiever, you've stolen their humanity, mm. and they expect something back. Uh, you know, I, I just think that it, the context, texture, the way we were speaking would be... The other thing is we would know the people around us. Uh, we wouldn't feel so isolated. People would... I think it would evoke enormous generosity and accept the fact that we are as altruistic as a human being as we are self-interested. I think the economy and current measures would get worse, that the gross domestic product would go down over time. I think uh, some of the large systems that depend on our consumerism would be, we would be kind of in crisis, and so there would be a structural shift. Mm-hmm. But I don't think... I think there are places now that are changing their measurements of well-being and including factors other than money. So, in some sense, the business section of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal would be in mourning for a long period of time. And they would say, oh my God, the stock market is down, the uh, new housing starts are down, and other measures of family well-being and uh, emotional and physical well-being, and the earth would be in celebration. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That is a, a vision, and I, and I like so much that you, um, you know, you, you forecasted the consequences of the vision on the big well, systems it is. as well. It's, it's, it's strange. The measures we have now aren't, aren't working that well. Yeah. You know, the, the stock market is the joke. It's the, it's the lead story. You know, you, uh, you know, this is a business network you're part of for Voice of America. Or, mm-hmm. And you go to a Rotary meeting. I was invited to talk to Rotary. And they, they're very structured, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But the first thing they say is the market today was up four points. Hmm. And I thought, well, the, the most important thing in this culture is how is the market doing? And that's a funny measure. It is a funny measure when you, when you think about this... Um, you know that dissatisfaction, that sense that this, you know, the sense that the blend, I think, of scarcity thinking and a sort of a consumeristic approach give us that, you know, we just aren't, we don't have enough, we're not safe, we don't have what we need, you know, versus the sense of satisfaction that can really come from tapping into what's present and looking at the gifts and the resources and the, not just within ourselves, but I think as you're saying it, within our within our extended community, you know, it's okay if I don't have it. Maybe you do. <laughs> well, we do, we do, and and the other thing is, it's it, it's a future lacking ideology. What's so painful now is all the people we hear speaking about the future are ideologues. It's a kind of a 
they have a point of view, and the point of view is more important than working something out. And, and that's just tragic. So part of the leadership role is to keep speaking for the common good, a world that works for all. And I think we've lost the sense of the commons in our in our drive for privatization, which has been going on for hundreds of years. And, and so I think that's probably probably what your program represents is a is a vision or a context in which the common good may be the point. And how I'm doing, it's not it's not uh, against that, but the question how I'm doing actually hurts me. It limits my possibility and drives me into this consumer mindset. And then, you know, the website, the Abundant Community, if I can just mention it again, please.com, we're trying to make visible those stories of people who are creating an alternative. Yes Magazine makes visible people creating the alternative. So the future we're talking about is present. It's among us. It's around us. And, and the seeds of the future are always in the present. And part of what you do is, is, you know, try to lift that up and say, uh, we don't have to wait for the future. It's around if I can just shift the thinking and context in which I show up. You know, I, I love that distinction of the seeds of the future in the present. And I couldn't agree with you more from the work I do with helping people to not just have a vision, but actually make that vision real. You know, it's not like it's something way, way out there. It's actually present right now. Today. It is present and they're doing it now. They just don't think it's important. Tell us in the couple minutes we have left about the work you're doing today, Peter, and, and how people can learn more about it. Well, I mentioned the website. I'm also uh, interested in rethinking uh, ways of thinking about economics. Uh, art has importance to our future, uh, and we've kind of discounted art. We've taken it out of the schools. Uh, religion now, the conversation is all about certainty and it's an argument rather than seeing it as a narrative and a place where mystery and fallibility and silence are valued. That the idea that everything is knowable, we just haven't figured it out yet, is a, so I think the conversation about God and what God is a placeholder for, we have to legitimize that conversation and not make it such a, a scary thing. Uh, in the journalism, I think there's a, we've got to change the narrative. So these are all kind of content areas that I'm trying to collect those people that are inverting our thinking about what might work in those areas. And then, the, you know, the local work is to say, well, who do you care about? You know, I live in a city. It's a dominant African-American city. And inner cities are not doing well. And so the work here isn't to do more services, but it's to say, what are the gifts if we care about our urban youth? Stop calling them our youth at risk. And uh, this group Elements that people can read about on our website, it's Elements with a Z. Mm-hmm. We, we ask these kids, what do you love to do? What are you good? Well, they love to dance. They love to sing. They love to make music. They love graffiti. And so all we're interested in is helping them learn how to do what they love and what they're good at, which is hip-hop culture, which is dance, it's music. They teach them to engineer and to write songs and to produce songs and to market songs. and Everything else you wish for these young people will come through what they're good at, not from their deficiencies. And to me, that's the 
the challenge is to find those places and agencies and funders who are willing to fund gifts and capacities rather than funding needs and deficiencies, which is the way that we work now. Well, starting with gifts, you know, starting with this this wonderful question, what do you love, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are you, what are you good at? It's a different question than how good are you. Yeah. See, we ask kids now, how good are you? What's your grade point average? Uh-huh. And, and we're, we're proud, you know, my kid is an honor student, so bumper sticker. Yeah. Stop asking that, say, what are you good at? You need to find out what you're good at. And, uh, and, and the, other, the other thing is that to start stopping loving like-mindedness, like-mindedness is keeping us apart. It, it segregates us. So part of the community work or the leadership work is to bring strangers together. Because it's hospitality and the welcoming of strangers that an alternative future occurs. If you are listening or you're in a leadership position or a coaching position and you care about a future distinct from the past, it only comes from strangers being in a small group discovering what they have in common. Peter, we're going to end on that note. And I want to say thank you so much for joining me today. And I want to invite those of you listening to pick up a copy of The Abundant Community. It is full of great ideas and uh, much elaboration. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for what you're doing with the show also. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.